Lord God, Heavenly Father, as you sent your Son into this world to be our Savior, he came as one who is stronger than the demons, as one who is stronger than death, one who is stronger than our sin. And so in his death and his resurrection, he conquered all of our enemies, and he grants unto us the kingdom, that though we are but children, in him we are considered to be sons and heirs of the kingdom. So teach us to live our lives rejoicing, trusting in him, that in him we have salvation and fellowship with you. So be with us now as we study your word in John. May these words show us our Savior Jesus, that we might find eternal life by believing in his name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so John 3. Um, John 3, you, you all heard of it. We've been spending lots of time in it, so we won't spend a whole lot of time describing where we are. But we just finished this little portion where Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, right? That whoever believes in him might have eternal life. Now, I just want to call one thing to your attention, then we'll move on. But how many of your Bibles have red print at this point? How many of the, yeah, mine does too. The Lutheran Study Bible has red print. Now, what happened was, um, back in the day, um, some dude decided, I actually don't know his name, that we should write all the words that Jesus spoke in red so that people would know when Jesus is speaking and when someone else is speaking, I guess. Um, It also is a fun little rhyme. The words in red are what Jesus said. You know, that's fun. But that's not why. But it's just a fun thing. So they went through and they decided uh, to put the words that Jesus said in red. However, in Greek, there aren't quotation marks. Nor are there there red letters in Greek. Like you don't have a manuscript where all of a sudden Jesus' words are in red or something like that. So this this is one of the things that the editors of this Bible have decided to do which are not actually part of the Bible. The red letters are not a biblical thing. They're just letters. So um, here is a place where they have made an editorial decision that uh, is not necessarily a consensus on what words Jesus spoke and what words he didn't speak. So one of the characteristics of the Gospel of John is that the author John, who is not John the Baptist, it's John the Disciple, The author, John, wrote in such a way that there are many places where it's hard to figure out if he's speaking or if he's quoting Jesus. And this is one of the places where we really don't know when Jesus stops speaking and John starts narrating. Okay? So your Bibles probably have Jesus speaking all the way through 21. And that's fine. That could be true. However, we don't know. A lot of people actually read this text that Jesus stops speaking at the end of 15 and that the narrator, the author of the gospel, is actually adding comment from 16 through, through the end of the chapter. So, we don't know. Um, but my point is, is that the, the red letters in your Bible are not divinely inspired coloring. That's simply a decision that some editor made somewhere as to who the, when they think Jesus is speaking. It's not always accurate. Okay? If I'm remembering correctly, but it's not really broken up at all. Like, mine indents at 60. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so that's right. So the other thing is the Greek manuscripts have no indention. They have no periods. There's no sentences. Um, they don't have capital letters or lowercase letters. It's either all in caps or all in lowercase. 
Um, there wasn't even spacing between the letters in the earliest manuscripts. Later, they became words, but the earliest manuscripts, all the letters are smushed together. So there, there's no space. Remember, when paper costs $75 a sheet, you can't afford spaces. Not kidding. You literally can't afford to put spaces in. So you just smush them all together. Okay? Yeah, some people still like to live that way, which is fine. Does that make sense? So, so there are a lot of things in the Bible. Um, the other thing that just as we're, since we're talking about this kind of stuff, my Bible has subheadings in it, right? Like above 316, it says, for God so loved the world. That's not part of the Bible. That's just something that the editor of this edition of the Bible decided to write in there. It's not inspired. It could be wrong. I don't know. It's just, it's just somebody's idea. So when we talk about the Bible being the word of God, we don't mean all these extra things. As I always tell you, the chapter numbers, not inspired. The verse numbers, not inspired. Okay? The, the red letters versus non-red letters, that, that, diff, that decision, not inspired. The subheadings, not inspired. The study notes, not inspired except for the ones written by my profs at Concordia Seminary St. Louis, those are close. <laughs> close to being fired. Right? Right? I think you're looking at... I know what he's looking at. Rolling his eyes. Yes. Um, yeah, but the, the study notes are not inspired. So, so the, import, the reason this is all important is because you actually need to know, when you pick up a Bible, you need to know what you're holding in your hand. It does have the word of God. The original, the words of the text of the scriptures are inspired by God. But all the extra stuff they put in, like the maps and the tables in the back, that's not inspired. Just a book, right? Does it make sense? Okay, so this is a place where the red letters may or may not be helpful. So let's look at John 3.16. Someone read John 3.16 to us. Or say it from memory. Either way is fine. John 3.16. Okay, good. We all know it. Um, it's a pretty familiar passage, obviously. And, okay, so, so we'll talk about it just briefly. So number one, how is this the gospel in a nutshell? This, is, this verse is often called the gospel in a nutshell. How, why? Why would we say that? Why is this verse so popular? Okay, it, it talks about Jesus. What else does it talk about? God. Love. Yeah, so you get eternal life thrown in there. It's kind of the whole point of what we preach smushed into one verse, right? So this is a very popular verse to say because it has God's action of loving this world in Christ. Okay? And the gospel... The good news, so remember, gospel, the word gospel really means good news, right? It's the good news. In Greek, it's exactly what the word, if you take it apart, it means good news. Like proclamation, good, right? So, the good news is what God has done in Christ. That is the good news, okay? So, the gospel is God's action to save this world, in Christ. Yeah? That's the content of the gospel. Now, the other part of the gospel is that 
God's action to save the world in Christ, who's it for? For you. Okay? So this is where the gospel is proclaimed to a person. The content of the gospel is what God has done in Christ. But the proclamation then is when we say, hey, this God who so loves the world that he sent his son Jesus Christ to die and rise again, it's for you. Right? It's for you. It's, it's for the person that you're talking to. It's for you as the person who's reading it or hearing it. And that's the other part of the gospel is that it's the, the action of God in Christ is good news. But, and this is something that's very important, and we talk about this as Lutherans in our catechism, is that it's for you, right? Listen, listen to the words even, we just celebrated the Lord's Supper, those who went to early service, right? It says, given and shed for you, for the forgiveness of sins. Right? Take and eat the body of Christ given for you. See, that's the, that's the gospel move toward a sinner is that it's not just an academic idea. It's actually for you. Okay? And you say, yeah, but I don't qualify. And you go, great! Then it's definitely for you. Right? And that's what our Old Testament lesson talked about today. Did you hear that? That he, he's, he's kind of wandering around. These people don't even want him. They didn't look for him. They didn't ask for him. They don't even want him once he shows up. And he's like, I'm still going to love people and save people, even in the midst of all that. Okay? So that's, that's the for you-ness of the gospel. And that's, so this is a very good verse to use. I know it's kind of almost cliche because it's overused, but that doesn't mean it's, it's not a good verse. I mean, this is one that we really should maybe talk to people about it and say, hey, you know that verse? Do you know what it means? I mean, it's not just words. They actually mean something. In your opinion, is this the best verse if somebody was going to pick a verse? For what? For, for, the, for the way this is used, for spreading the gospel. If somebody's going to hold up a sign at a baseball game, is this the sign? If, if no, because it's trite now. Because it's, it's too cliche. So what would you pick instead? Um. <laughs> <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs> oh, well, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. Well, I mean... But I just figured you always have, like, you usually have an opinion, and I thought, oh... Yeah, I do I'm usually sure have an Kevin opinion. Say, <laughs> I'm sure Kevin would say, but the better one would be this. Well, it depends what you mean. If I'm going to hold up a sign... Right. I don't know. I'd probably hold up Galatians 2.20. I think that's the best verse in the Bible. And I shouldn't say that out loud, but I do. Mm-hmm. I think it's the best verse in the Bible. Um... But I, I often um, also point people to 2 Corinthians 1.20. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so the Amen is spoken to the glory of God. It, because um, it, it helps us move toward not just God as a generic idea, but it's, it's God in Christ that we're talking about. Everyone agrees on God, right? God's a generic word. It just means divine being. But we want, to, we want to find passages that move us to, to God in Christ. Because that's the God we're actually teaching, right? We're not talking about generic God. So I, I use Galatians, or 2 Corinthians 1.20. I use Galatians 2.20, which says, um, I have been crucified with Christ, and as long as I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live by, in the body I live by faith, and the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I also, I also look at... Um, 2 Corinthians 5, 
14 through, I just keep going is the problem. But, but 14 and 15 says this, for the love of Christ compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all have died. And those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and who were raised again. So because we, well, and then the Bible translation says, so we no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer because if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, the new is come. And so I'll use that sometimes to talk about, because a lot of people ask, this is actually fun. A lot of people ask me about this. Why do you wear a cross? And I say, well, like, Around my neck, against my heart, I wear a wooden cross. And sometimes I remember what freedom cost. Right? That's actually a lyric from a song. But, and they're like, what do you mean? And so then I talk to them about um, what does it mean to live your life believing that God has done something to save you and that it's not my doing, it's his doing. Right? And so that, those are the verses I will often use to... And then, if you know, First John, basically just anything from John is good. And 1 John is succinct. So I also talk about um, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, which is a very good passage. Um, and it goes something like this. It says, brothers, uh, let us love one another. No, that's not how it starts. How does it start? I got my mind around this one. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Brothers, yeah, let us love one another. Um, for whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And this is the love of God, that he sent his son among us, right? And then, and then it goes on in, chapter, in verse 10, it says, and this is love. Not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then verse 11 says, and if God so loved us, let us love one another. So, so those are passages that I use to kind of point people to the action of God in Christ to save the world. And then Al says Genesis 3.16. I can't go wrong. Does that, does that help? But this isn't bad. See, see, the reason this is a good one is because it's something common that people might already know. So you're walking into a conversation, you say, have you ever heard a Bible verse? And they're like, no. And you say, well, what about John 3.16? And they might say, well, I've seen that on a sign. And then you can say, well, do you know what it says? See that? So in that way, yes, it's great. You're looking for a way to let them allow you to talk about your faith, right? So if, if John 3.16 is something they're familiar with, use it. It's great. If they're, if they're like, yeah, John 3.16, that's trite and whatever, then use a different verse and say, well, that's not the only verse that says that, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Anybody else? Questions? Okay, number two. What's missing from this verse? Resurrection. Yeah, resurrection. The Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. By the way, the Holy Spirit's missing from most verses. <laughs> Sin. Us, yeah, other than believing. What else? What do you guys do in church? 
Worship, confess, pray. There's no prayer in this. Lord's Supper. There's no sacraments. Justification by grace through faith. Is that in there anywhere? Is the word justification in there? Yes. Is there? Not really. What's that? See, that's exactly right. You guys are reading all of this into that verse. So this verse kind of requires... Even this being the, the summary verse of the gospel, we're kind of bringing in everything we know from the rest of Scripture into this verse. So if you're talking to somebody about this verse, you actually need to help them understand all the stuff you're assuming this verse says. This verse actually doesn't say anything about Jesus dying, does it? It doesn't say anything about Him rising. It doesn't say anything about sin. It doesn't say anything about dying. You dying. It says we'll have eternal life, which is kind of assuming that we need that. But it doesn't say anything about why we would be dying or sinning. So that's kind of the point, is when you read the Bible, you are assuming a lot of stuff. And you bring it with you when you read texts. Okay? And sometimes that's really good. That's what you've been instructed in in catechism. That's what we do here. That's what you learn in church all the time. But when you're talking to somebody else sometimes you need to be aware that it doesn't say exactly what you think it says. And you need to explain it to them. Help them understand why it matters and what it says. And sometimes even yourself, you need to stop and read the text and see what it actually says and what it doesn't actually say. Okay? Yeah? All right, any questions so far? You guys okay? Number three. So what is love? Just let, now let's actually look at the verse. What is love? Sacrifice. Yes, it's sacrifice. And specifically what sacrifice? Love is actually God's sending his son as a sacrifice for the world. That is actually love. I don't care what you think. That is love. So if you love, it should be a reflection of love. It shouldn't be contrary to that. It shouldn't be different than that. It shouldn't be against that. It should be a reflection of that. Which means when you love someone, even romantically, it should be a love that serves and dies and sacrifices and is a reflection of this, right? When you love somebody, the very most important thing you can share between each other is the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the fullest love there is. Okay? Yeah or no? Yes. Or is or is there just a bunch of love out there and God gets a shot at trying hard to be lovey like you guys are? See, this is this is a fundamental way to approach the scriptures because 
if you think love is defined by the way you interpret love, then what happens is you say, well, God is love, therefore he must live up to my standard of love. And he doesn't do well living up to your standards. Does he? No, because he's not trying to. Right? When you say, well, God, if you're love, you have to live the way that I would live if I were love. Therefore, you have to act this way. And he says, I wasn't asking your advice. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't wondering how to handle this situation. So this is, this is a major issue is that when the scriptures teach us love, it actually teaches us that love is defined by God's actions. Love is defined by what God does. Yes? God being what? Well, that's actually... Yeah. Oh, boy. One substance, three persons. Don't divide the substance. Don't... Confuse the person. Confuse the person. And no, don't confuse your teacher either. So <laughs> God is God is the three persons? I don't know. We haven't gotten there yet. I was I didn't even write that one down because I was scared to ask that. But I was thinking in church we should deal with this. Yeah. We'll get there. Okay? We will get there. Any questions on love and the and the idea of what love actually is? Yes, sir. God is, God is love. That's exactly right. First John says that three times in chapter four. God is love. It's in four eight, four sixteen, and four nineteen. God is love. Okay. So that's important, isn't it? That means when we love, He's the source of that love, and He's the one that we're supposed to serve with that love, right? So we really can't love contrary to God. That's actually not love. Right? Yeah? Hmm. Okay, so let's let's get to Susan's inquiry here. So so we kind of skip we do this all the time in the Bible. We skip the word God. And we move on to the other words that are more fun to talk about. But who is this God? Who is the God that John 3.16 is talking about. Who is God? He's the creator. Well, he's got to be the father if he's sending his son. Yeah. Well, would he not? I think he's just God. I never worried about it. Assume it's the father because then he says the son is a separate entity. Yeah? Okay. Who is this God who is a father who has a son? Who is that? Is it a God that Jesus is making up? Sorry, a new religion? The God of Abraham. He's the I am. He's the I am. Where do you get that from? You guys are just saying stuff, and those are all fun answers, but what is that? Why would you say that? Why would you assume, or why would you presume, that the God of John 3.16 is described in Old Testament terms? Because of the previous chapter. Which does what? So who's this God Jesus is talking about? The God of the He's the God of the Old Testament. 
The God who acts in the Old Testament is the God that Jesus is talking about explicitly. That's important. And the God of the Old Testament is and only is the God who did what? In this verse. Sent his son. So if you are denying that he sent his son, you are denying God. If you are denying the, the son, you are denying the father. Is that a biblical teaching? Jesus says it all the time. If you, when we read John, you'll hear Jesus say this all the time, that if you deny the son, you deny the father. You can't say, I worship God the father and deny who his son is. You can't do that, right? So if someone says, oh, we all believe in the same God, you just have your Jesus and we have our, you say, whoa, 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 whoa. The only God that I believe in, the only God is the one who sent his son. Yeah? See, this is important, is that the God who loves is the God who sends his son. If you want to talk about a loving God, the only context we, context we have to talk about that is in the sending of the Son. There is no generic God who loves generically. No, the God who loves that we know about is the God who sends his Son as the result of that love. And as that love itself. Okay? Does that make sense? And that's actually part of this verse is people will often say, and we've talked about a lot in this class as well, if God is a loving God, and what I would do is I would stop them right there and say, whoa, who said God is loving? Where did you get that from? Right. I mean, you certainly are not living in this world if you think God is a loving God. You are not looking around and getting your evidence of God from the things that happen in this world. You would actually say, God is not involved, maybe? Or spiteful? Because he... Valley Park has been flooded for like a month. He's a God who can't get rid of water, apparently. I don't know. I mean, that's the point. Is Where are we learning that God is a loving God? God is love. God can be the whatever you call it. Yeah, whatever. It doesn't have to be a bridge or this or that. Right. And so, and so what, that's exactly the point is that they're just making stuff up. And you're saying, when I say God is love, I'm getting that from the scriptures. Where are you getting it from? Where did you learn that God is love? Yeah, self-help books. Say, okay, where do they teach you to figure out what that love means? Where do they point you, right? Where do self-help books point you? To yourself, right? Well, you're not really a good solution to your own problems. I'm here to tell you that right now, okay? But see, here's, here's what the scriptures reveal about a God who is love. A God who is love, according to the Holy Scriptures, is a God who sends his son to save the entire world. 
And you go, well, that God doesn't seem to be doing a very good job of loving the world. You say, I know, you should read the story. It's crazy. Because just when you think you got this all figured out, Jesus is like, hey, I'm God in the flesh. I'm here to save the world. I was like, yes, we sign on to the right guy. He's awesome. When you come in your kingdom, let us sit at your throne and right and left. And Jesus is like, yes, hold on a second. I've got to go ascend my throne and die. And they all went, What? That's not how this is supposed to go. And that's what we actually learn is that you, we never learn to interpret God through our, our senses and what we see and what we experience. No, we learn to trust that God is exactly who he says he is. And if you want to know what God has done and is doing in this world, it's right there. It's the cross. It doesn't look like God loves me very much. It doesn't look like God loves me when I lose my job and my family's falling apart and my whatever, whatever, and my value of my house goes so high I can't afford my taxes and it doesn't look like God loves me, right? Don't, don't despair. I know God loves you. He has done something. He has done something to prove it. He has done something to conquer all things, Right? He has done something. And what do we do with this life that gets really messy and hard to deal with? What do we do? We pray, which is nice. What's that? We read his word. What else do we do? What do we do with with somebody in this room who can't figure out how to make it through the day? What do we do? We love each other. This God who loves says, as you live in this world, you also love okay all right so that's who god is yeah it's god of israel so number four what is grace for god so loved the world that he gave see that's that's the grace word the giving of god is the action of grace Okay, so it doesn't say God so loved the world that he provided his son so you could try to figure out how to earn his love. No, it says God so loved the world that he gave. It's a gift. Okay, so God's action of love in order to save, when God wants to save, he gives. That's huge. That's huge. Why do you go to church? To receive. That's right. To receive what God is giving. Because when I need salvation, I don't look here and say, what do I need to do to be saved? I look at God and say, I need a savior. I need saving. I need forgiveness. I need hope. I need whatever, right? And what does he do? He gives it. Why? Because he loves. Because of his son. So when God saves... He gives. This is really what we mean by grace. That God gives salvation. Now, who does God give salvation to? This is going to be a tricky question. I'm just warning you right up front here. This is a tricky Lutheran question. Who is worthy to receive God's gift of salvation? Jesus. Jesus. The only one worthy to receive God's gift of salvation is... Jesus. So then why in the world do you get it? 
Right, because you're with him. How, when you are baptized, you are baptized into Christ Jesus, into the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are now part of the body of Christ, the church, right? And so now, guess what you get? You get what Jesus deserves. This is what the gospel reading, or I'm sorry, the, the epistle reading was about today. What did Paul say? If, if you're just hanging out as a son, you're, you're just as good as a slave. You get nothing. Who cares? But now that Christ has come, in Him, you are an heir. You get what Jesus gets because He is the Son of the Father who will inherit the kingdom. And so if you are in Christ, you get exactly what Jesus gets, which is the kingdom of the Father. Right? And it says, why? Because if you're baptized into Christ, you're in Christ. If you're in Him. If you're in Him, is there a male and female difference? No? Slave or free? Jew or Greek? No? All are one in Christ. That means we're all sons. We're all sons. So when, it, when you are ready to inherit the kingdom, does God see you as slave or free or Jew or Greek? No, we're all one in Christ. Right? And so for all of eternity, you will inherit what Jesus earned. That's what you get. That's called grace. You didn't earn it. Someone else did. But you get it as a gift. Okay? Now, here's the question. Can you mess up so bad that Jesus didn't die on the cross? Can you be so awesome that God goes, well, I was impressed by Jesus, but now I'm really impressed by Gene. <laughs> yeah, see? Uh-uh. Ain't gonna happen. Right? So that's the point. Is You can't out God's grace. Don't try. But you also can't earn his favor because his favor has already been poured out on Christ who has earned his favor, has fulfilled the law, has done all things, right? So we're not trying to supplant Jesus. We're not walking around saying, hey, look at me, look how awesome I am. Nor are we looking around saying to God the Father, well, I'm so naughty, you can't love me. No. Both when we feel the guilt of our sin weighing on us and we feel like we're so awesome, we take all of that and we go right to the foot of the cross and we say, not me, not me, not me. Him. Because when I look at me right now, what do I see? I've sinned in thought, word, deed. When it comes to my standing before God, I deserve his temporal and eternal punishment. But for the sake of Jesus Christ, do you hear that in our confession? But for the sake of Jesus Christ, have mercy. So also, when you say, well, I was pretty good today. I don't remember sinning at all. <laughs> when you say your prayers, you bow down and you say, not because of me, Lord. Listen to these prayers only in Jesus' name. Right? I come before you because of Jesus. And that's wonderful because 
This never changes. God is never going to look at you and say, I'm not going to listen to your prayers today. He's never going to listen to your confession and say, you're not forgiven today. He's never going to do it because the action of God to save you is complete. It's done. It is finished. And God so loved you, just like he loves the whole world, that he sent his son. He gave him. He gave his son for you. And now that salvation is complete for you. It's for you. Right? Does that make sense? So this is what we say, is that grace, grace is God's favor because of Jesus. That's what grace is. God's favor because of Jesus. Okay? If you like Latin, it's favor dei propter Christum. It's God's favor or God's Love, you want to, if you want to say it that way, because of Jesus. Does God love anybody outside of Jesus? Nope. Unmerited. Unmerited. You didn't earn it, right? That's exactly right. It's not favor because of your good works. It's favor because of. Jesus, right? Yeah, you're exactly right. It's un- another way we talk about grace is unmerited favor. God riches at Christ's expense, right? You see, it's all moving in the same direction. It's all God gr- likes us or loves us or is, has favor on us because of Jesus. So let me ask again. Does God love anybody outside of Jesus? Ooh, this one gets tough, doesn't it? So if you walk to somebody as a Christian, can you say God loves you to them? Yes. But I didn't think that... Jesus came to all. And he died for... Did it work? Yes. So you can walk up to somebody who hates Jesus and say, hey, guess what? Jesus died for you. God loves you. Your sins have been... Can you say your sins are forgiven? <coughs> Whoa, right? See, now this is the for you part of the gospel. If I say Jesus died for you and they say, no thanks, then what do we say? Still covered. What's that? Still covered. Well, no, he still died for you, but now you are rejecting God's gifts. gifts. And, and Jesus is going to get there pretty quickly. It says, if you don't believe in God's, the one that God sent, then you are already condemned because you don't believe in the name of the one he sent. See, it's, it's, we, we always got to balance this, is that God's love for the world is complete. Christ died for every single sin of every single person. We can't deny those truths. But if someone denies the gift and says, no, thank you, I don't believe it, I don't want it, then what do we say to them? Yeah, not good. I got a little friendly advice for you. Don't reject this gift, right? It's got really bad consequences. And we have to confess that as well because the scriptures do. Matter of fact, it's in the next couple of verses. Is that those who do not believe in Christ as their Savior are not saved. Does God love them? In Christ, yeah. He's actually done something to save them. Does that mean they're going to heaven? 
Not if they reject Jesus. Right? Does that make sense? I mean, it doesn't make sense, but do you hear how we have to kind of go about that? And this is important as we do bring the, the, the message to the world, is that we, we want to always keep those things in balance, right? In tension. We can't deny either truth. No, they're not making a decision. Yeah, good. Good. So, all right. Good question. Right? I'm going to do my best. It's, it's the entire world of theology in five minutes, which is the problem. Okay? So, so you just got to kind of stick with me on this. If, okay, let's, I just do the same illustration over and over, and you'll totally keep doing it, because it helps, so I'll, I'll keep doing it. So, stick person center, right? Not neutral, by the way, I just can't draw a non-neutral center. There's no way to do it. Um, stick person center, we're going to talk about them, that they're either going to go to one or two places when they die, which is? Heaven. Heaven. I'm glad you guys are positive today. Sometimes you say hell first, it freaks me out. <laughs> or... Hell, right. Without donuts, I was thinking you might go to the hell direction. I don't know. Okay, so the question is, how do you get there? And, and this is, whether we like it or not, the fundamental question of humanity is, how is your eternal reality determined? Because I am here to tell you, and we, we'll, we can spend time looking at this if you want to, but the, the Bible teaches very clearly that we will spend eternity somewhere. Yeah? It is not an option to just say, I'm opting out of eternity. You can't do that. There's no such thing as annihilationism where you just stop existing. You don't get to go to nirvana, which is just nothingness. You, no, those are not the options. The scriptural reality is that you are an eternal being. Eternal from the time of your birth, moving forward. Time of your conception, moving forward, you are an eternal being. Yeah? Right? Okay. So you're going to spend eternity somewhere. And, you know, Fenton is nice, but probably not here. Okay? And the, the, the words we're going to use to describe those today are heaven and hell. There are other words, but this is where God is. This is where God is not. Okay? I mean, he's there, but he's not there. Okay? You don't receive his grace and mercy and favor there. Okay? We're all okay with that? That means the real question for you as a human is, what determines where you go for all of eternity? And John 3.16 says that if you get eternal life, it's because God sent his son. Right? So logically speaking, if God's the one who saves you, then God is the one who decides that you're not saved. Is that right? No, that's called double predestination and is not, not scriptural. That's not what you find in scripture. This is a philosophical attempt to solve the problem that Elise is, is bringing up, right? Is it seems like you're saying this, therefore the opposite of that must be this which is the opposite of that, but it doesn't make it true. Okay? So this is scriptural. 
That is correct. That's what God has done in Christ, is that if you go to heaven, it's because God saves you by his grace, by his Holy Spirit calling you to faith, right? Word and sacrament. That's true. But this is not true. People are not sent to hell because God determined to send them there. Okay? So, we, we, try, we try again. We say, sick person, going to go to hell, no donut, or going to heaven, God loves you, and there's donuts. Okay? So we say, oh, well, if it's not God's fault that people go to hell, then it's people's own fault so they go to hell. I write man because it's, sh it's shorter than person, but read people if man offends you, if you're not a man. It's probably man's fault anyway. But, um, yeah, see? So if it's man's fault that we go to hell because we sin, we reject God, we don't like him, therefore, it must be something in us that's different than this if we end up here. Okay? And this is called, this is also not right, by the way. And this is called decision theology. It's called, um, in, in many ways, Roman Catholicism. Right? This is what Roman Catholics teach, kind of. They teach it semi-Pelagianism. Um, it's Arminianism. And honestly, it's what most American Christians teach. Okay? Billy Graham did this. Billy Graham was one of the best preachers in the history of the Christian church. And 99% of what he said was right. But he always made a fatal mistake in his preaching. And it was this. He would say, he would, he would talk about the gospel in the most amazing terms. I wish I could preach that well about the gospel and proclaim the wonders of God the way he did. But then he would get to this and he'd say, now God has done all of this. Won't you meet him just 1%? Or won't you just take one step? And the answer is, no, I won't. I won't. Why? Because I'm dead. I can't take any steps. And so the problem is, even a sinner's prayer in which you say, I've decided to ask Jesus into my heart, it's doing something for God to save you. Well, you can't. The scriptures teach us that in our, when we are born original sin, we are born dead. And I've done a lot of funerals in my day. And here's the number one rule of funerals. If the person in the casket starts doing something, it's not a funeral. Yeah, get out. Find some pigs nearby or something. I don't know, right? I mean, that's, that's, it's funny, but it's real. Dead people, part of the definition of dead is you're not doing much. You're dead, right? So we, we do not say that we play any role in our, not even a, a minuscule little, well, don't you have to? And the answer is no. <coughs> no. I don't do anything that contributes to my salvation. Not, not making a decision, not praying a prayer, not believing correctly. Nothing that's attributed to me is part of my salvation. Right? The scriptural way that this is actually pictured is that all sinners will spend eternity in either heaven or hell. That's true. And everyone in hell will be there because of their sin. Everyone will be there because of their sin. They'll be there as punishment for their unrighteousness, for their lack of holiness, for their non-fellowship with God. There's lots of different ways to talk about it. And it's their fault. 
Can't blame anybody else. It's their fault. They listen to the world. They listen to the devil. They listen to their sinful self. Right? Yeah? You guys believe that? Anyone who is in heaven is there because God saves them through his grace in his son, Jesus Christ. Okay? Anyone in heaven is there because of God's actions alone. That's what it means to be saved by grace through faith because of what Jesus has done. Okay? So what we believe, the scriptures teach it very plainly, that we believe in what's called divine monergism. Okay? Divine monergism. Divine means God. Mono means alone. And energy is working or, or power. So we believe that God alone is doing the work. Okay? So if you are saved, all, and you are, all y'all, right? Not because I said so. But we believe we are. We're in fellowship of believers here. Who gets the credit for that? How much credit do you get for it? None. It's just a gift given. So when someone says, how do you know you're saved? Do you know you're saved? You say, yeah. Well, well, when were you saved? Christ died on the cross. God sent his son. Well, then he sent it for everybody? Yeah. Well, when did that become yours? I was, we sang it today in church, right? I was baptized into this. I heard the word and the spirit gave me faith in this. Well, didn't you have to decide? Well, yeah, I decided. But that decision was simply evidence of the, what the Spirit had already done in my heart. See? It's said, yeah, I had to decide to go to church today. Yes, I had to set the alarm. Yes, I had to put on clothes. Yes, I had to open my Bible. And I can say, look at, look at me. Look at all the stuff I'm doing. No, 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 no. That's what the Spirit is doing in you. Same thing with good works. This is actually what the Bible says. Jesus is like, hey, we're, you know, when Jesus comes back in your head, which direction? Left. Good. Because that's Jesus' right. right. Okay, good. So he says to the sheep on his right, he says, well done. You guys were awesome. You served well. You did great stuff. And, the, and their response is actually this. Who, me? When did I? When did I do that? Because we don't live our lives looking at ourselves. That's sin. We live our lives looking at Christ and serving others. Right? And that's actually how this works. Is that? So the answer is, the sinner's prayer, the things that it says in there, I want Jesus to be my Lord. I want my sins forgiven. I want to live my life for God. We're like, all that's good stuff. But none of it saves you. The action that saves is God's love in Christ, cross, empty tomb, right? That's given to us through hearing the word, through the sacraments. That's the action of saving. All of that is God's doing, right? Now, if someone says, hey, I, I decided today to read my Bible. We don't say, well, you're not saved by your decisions. That's a terrible thing to do. No, we say, great. That's a good decision. 
right? <laughs> Please decide to love your neighbor today. Please decide to open your Bibles tonight before you go to bed. Please decide to come to Bible class. These are all good decisions, right? And who taught you to make these good decisions? I did. (laughs) See, that's exactly right. The Holy Spirit teaches us to make these decisions. How? By being in the Word, by receiving the sacraments. This is what the liturgy is teaching us, is that the Spirit is instructing us on how we should live. So when we actually do that, who gets the credit? Our instructor, God. Right? But if someone says, oh, so you don't make any decisions as a Christian, you go, are you crazy? I make all kinds of decisions as a Christian. I have to, because I'm confronted with choices. And most of the time, my brain is going to tempt me to go to the sinful one. I need the Spirit teaching me how to make these decisions. So what do I do? I read his word. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who meditates on the word of the Lord. How often? Day and night. Day and night. And then read the rest of the Psalms. The guy who says, meditate on the word of the Lord day and night, what does he do? He struggles with life. He says things like, God, where are you? I've been praying all night and you haven't done a thing. I haven't slept in months because I've been praying so much and you haven't helped one bit. That's what it says in the Psalms. And then he says, but you know what? I'm still going to trust in your unfailing love because you are my rock. You are my salvation. You are my shelter. You are the place that I run to. Right? So you don't learn to judge God by your circumstance. You learn to judge your circumstance by God's word, by his promises. Okay? So, oh boy, we're, we're out of time. It's not my fault. It's one verse, and we didn't finish. <laughs> but it's John. It's, that, it's the way it goes. All right, next week we will finish John 3.16. Because <laughs> all we have left is eternal life. That couldn't take long, right? That's all. All right, yeah, it's an easy one. Um, so let's pray, then we'll go. Lord God, Heavenly Father, it is because of your grace that we even pray to you. Because of your grace in your Son, Jesus Christ. So teach us to live each day thankful for your love and reflecting that love in our lives. Bless us this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks a lot.